Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Isn't it true, isn't it true that when you look back over your life, some of the biggest points of pain don't come from circumstances or even things that necessarily went poorly, but they come from relationship issues. They come from relationship issues. You know, it's that mother that always had to be right, the father who wasn't faithful to what he said he would do, your friend's careless words that ended up splitting that relationship. I talk with people all the time about challenges they have in their lives, and it is almost never about that car accident they were in, and it is almost always about that relationship that went soured, that relationship that was broken. As painful as it can be to receive to receive something negative from someone else's mistake. But here's what I found. Here's what I I found that as painful as that is, that that, that it's way more painful when you have regret from the things that you've done that have hurt somebody else. The regret you have when your careless words caused that thing to fall apart When your actions killed that relationship, you wish you could go back in time, you would do anything to be able to have a different set of values at that point in time, to say something different in that moment. You wish you could travel back in time. I found that nothing is more painful than the hurt that has been caused to someone else, not just because of what they've done, but because of what I've done or what you have done. I think that's why God cares so much about our relationships, because he cares about us. There was someone who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you sum it all up for me? Like, what what is following God all about? And this is what he said in Matthew verse 22. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and we would expect that, love God. And then he goes on and he says this, and the second is like it. Love, the na- love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, God cares about our relationship with him, but because he loves us, the way that that relationship with him is going to flow out is going to flow out to the relationships around us. It's going to impact that somehow. Now, as long as we're around people, there's going to be hurt, and so we're going to have to have grace. We're going to have to have patience with one another when we're in relationship with others. We're going to have to navigate other people's faults. But wouldn't it be worthwhile to do everything we can do to avoid the regret of being the person that's responsible for that relationship falling apart? To be able to say, I want to do everything I can to not bring pain unnecessarily to someone else. To be diligent to do what we can to have as few regrets as possible. That's why we're starting a series called Relationship Killers. Relationship Killers. And even as I say this, you're probably thinking about some relationships that you've had that have gone sour, some people maybe that have hurt you, or things that you've done to hurt others. What we're going to do is we're going to look at some issues that might cause contention, and then we're also going to examine God's Word to try to get out of it wisdom that would help us navigate these situations so that we don't damage them and so that we can live with fewer regrets. And I wonder as we broach this first topic this weekend, if that, it's something that, that wouldn't necessarily come to our thought process. 
Like if you think about things that might cause a relationship to go sour or to be killed, you're probably not thinking about this one. You're probably thinking about some other problem. It's a silent killer. Today's relationship killer is greed. Greed. This is how greed is defined. Greed is defined as a selfish and excessive desire for more of something, usually money. An excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Comes from an old English word, and it means the old English word means voracious, always hungry, always wanting more. Greedy people. We all know them, don't we? And even now, you're probably starting to think about someone that you've seen or experienced. Don't point to them if they're in the room. That's a bad idea. Don't elbow them if they're right next to you. Don't do that, right? But we think of someone. So it's the CEO that would, would have success at any cost. And their success was built on the backs of those people that were underpaid and underbenefited. We think of career politicians who, whose pay and perks of the job far outweighed the plight of the constituents that they were there to represent. We think of those who have extreme wealth and have little to no concern for those people who are less, fortune, or less fortunate or have less of a fortune than them and seek only to promote their well-being. Or maybe when we think about someone who's greedy, we're thinking about someone who maybe they don't have everything they think they deserve. And so when they, when they face that reality, they say, if I can't have it, then no one else is going to have it either. Greedy people. We all know a greedy person probably. But greed, it's one of those things that it's always, it's always someone else, isn't it? It's always someone else's issue. You know, there's issues all the time, and as a pastor, as I'm talking with people about challenges they face, I'll, I'll deal with issues such as like, well, how do I deal with this substance abuse issue or this mental health issue, or how do I deal with a faithfulness issue between me or my spouse? How do I deal with, with, with anger that just seems to consume me? But I never have anyone come up to me and say, hey, Scott, you know, you know what my problem is? I'm just a greedy person. I'm just a greedy person. I'm never happy with what I have, and it really gets in the way of my relationship with God and my relationship with others. Have you ever said those words, I'm greedy? Maybe we've thought we're greedy, but our egos really can't handle speaking it out loud, so we soften it a little bit. So we say things like, well, you know, I can, I can be a little selfish sometimes, or maybe I'm a little too driven for success. It's easy to see in others, but we don't want to see it in ourselves or we aren't looking for it in ourselves. Now, studying what we're going to talk about this weekend has caused me to, to take a perhaps uncomfortable look in my own heart and my own life. And as I look at this, I have to come to this place where I confess first that I am a greedy person that I often feel like I haven't gotten my due, and when I don't feel like I've gotten my due, I'm going to let people know about it. That even when I have all that I need, I'm going to say, I'm not going to share that with someone else. 
I feel like there are times when my theme song should be never enough from the greatest showman. It says this, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. It's true about me. And the truth is, greed does not always show up only for those people who are in a certain socioeconomic class. It's not only for those rich people out there. Greed, as we've learned before, is that hunger, that drive for more, but it can also be this. It can be having plenty, but being unwilling to share it with other people. It can also be being discontented with what you have and then seeing what someone else has, and all of a sudden you find yourself desiring what they have or being sour against them because they have a car that's a few years newer than yours, because they have more square footage than yours, because their kids are getting better grades than yours, because they have a dog and you have a cat. Sometimes it shows up this way. It can be that person who wants to control and protect and hold on to their finances and their resources. They're not lavishly spending, but they're hunkering down on them and they're saying, this is mine, this is my precious, and I'm not going to let anyone touch it. Greed like that. Greed in my life and greed in your life can become deadly when it leads to deception and distrust and in division, and in many cases, it leads to debt as well. When we're controlled by greed like that, we find that our relationships become a means to an end rather than the glorious end in itself. We start treating what should be covenantal as transactional, and we start thinking that I can earn relationship from someone else, or they need to earn it from me when we approach it transactionally. When we start to think that things are the most important things that we can have, they take priority over relationships. And it's those people that are around us that suffer the most from that. It's our children that take the back seat to success, our spouses who experience the fallout of our bad financial decisions. It's our friends that become pawns simply to be played, and it's that stranger simply becomes someone to be ignored. So how do we do something about this issue of greed that I think is latent in every human heart? How do we do something with that? I think this is an answer that we're going to consider this weekend. If we want to keep greed from killing our relationships, we have to choose contentment. If we want to keep greed from killing our relationships, we have to choose contentment. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the church planter that went around and, and told people about Jesus, he wrote a letter to a young protege, Timothy. Timothy was leading a local church, and, and he found that as he looked at the people around him, there were relationships that started to get soured because people had ulterior motives. They weren't pure in heart. They weren't contented with what they had, and so they would use their position in the church to try to gain things, to get things. They were greedy. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells them, what's the antidote for that kind of greed? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, this is in the app as well. You can follow along there. He says this, he says, godliness with contentment. Everyone say contentment. Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, 
and we can take nothing out of it. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Contentment, it's not simply a lack of desire for something else, but it's an inward state of being a sense that what I have is sufficient for me. I don't need anything else outside of what I have. What I have, God has given me. What God has given me in my wages, in my station in life, in my relationships, in my spouse, those things satisfy me. That's contentment. And if you and I can figure this out, how to be content, Paul would say that that in itself is a great wealth. If you can be satisfied in what God's already given you, you'll be one of the most wealthy people. You won't constantly be craving and grabbing for more, always hungry but never filled, always wanting but never satisfied. Socrates, or Socrates, as Bill and Ted said it, he had this quote that I think is quite helpful. He said, he that is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he would like to have. He that is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he doesn't, what he still wants. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So Paul says, hey, there's a, there's a, a standard here of, of contentment, right? If, when you have food and when you have clothing, and I think there's a correction here, right? Because what he's saying, he, what he isn't saying is, hey, food and clothing and that stuff, it doesn't matter. You should just live in a shack. You should live in a cardboard box in a hole in the ground. You wear a burlap sap. That's all you need. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that. He's, he's not saying that stuff is wrong or bad. It's not wrong for those to be fulfilled in your life. See, in Paul's day, there was a group of people called the ascetics. The ascetics came out of Greek thought, and the Greek thought was this, was that everything that is spiritual is good, and everything that is physical is bad. These two dual natures. And so people that were very, very, uh, very, very spiritual, they would deny their physicality. They, they would starve themselves. They would whip themselves. This is a Gnostic belief, and they would, say, they would say this, by the way, anything that I'm going to take from the physical world and ingest it, bring it into my body, needs to be made holy and pure, right? Now, this is not in my notes, and this is an aside, but that idea, that thought process is a Gnostic, heretical viewpoint, and that is the thing that makes us say, well, before we eat, we need to bless the food, but for Jesus, that's not the way that he operated. For Jesus and the Jews, all of life was sacred. What they eat, their, their, their body, their soul, their spirit, it was all sacred before God to be given with, to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, he said. So this thought process that, you know what, it's only the spiritual and the physical doesn't matter and this stuff is really bad and wrong, you should never want, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you have food and you have shelter, if you have clothes, be content with that. Be content with that. And so Paul then goes on and he talks about how we can combat our propensity for, for greed. He says, here's why you should be contented. Verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Our world is built off of this principle that there's something missing in your life. And if you would just pay me $19.99, you can have this thing and you'll be happy and your kids will be happy. You'll look like these people on this commercial. Our whole culture is built around that. Paul says, be very, very careful that you don't fall into this trap, this temptation, because it's, it's dangerous. Those people who will want to get more stuff, to save more stuff, to accomplish more stuff, they're falling into temptation. And here's the temptation, and you know this. The temptation is this, that those things are going to satisfy you. That those things are going to scratch the itch in your life and that you will be full and overflowing if you would just have this thing. And you and I have been through enough Christmases to know that the thing that you were so excited to uncover underneath that Christmas tree is now in the trash can a week and a half later. The batteries have ran out. The thing has broken. You already had one and you didn't really need it. We have this thought process that if I can just get this, this will satisfy me. Paul says that's a temptation and he calls it a trap because it's never ending. You'll never be satisfied by that. You'll always want more. But once you finally have more, then you have to insure it. And then you have to have an accountant that helps you keep track of it. And then you have to buy someone to protect it. And then you have to depreciate it. And then at the end of your life, after you've worked so hard to collect this collection of Russian nesting dolls, now your kids are going to have to care about getting rid of your Russian nesting dolls that nobody wants, but you thought you would be happy if you could just have another motorcycle, another guitar, another house, another thing. And then once you have those things, you have to work to, to, to sustain them. Now I have the four to 10 acres. Now I have to mow the four to 10 acres. Now I have the nest egg. Now I have to follow the stock market every day and keep track of if it's in the right place or the, or the wrong place. Paul would call that a trap. He calls that foolish and harmful desires. It's harmful because of this, because if you chase after them, it's going to plunge you into ruin and destruction in your life and in your relationships. And here's the trap, and you guys know this, that rich is a moving target. Rich is a moving target, and what was enough for you today was not enough for you yesterday. What was enough for you yesterday is not enough for you today. He goes on, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I, I had a friend and he was pr pretty antagonistic to church. Maybe I've told this story before. I don't know. Pretty antagonistic to church. Uh, but he was there and so one day he caught me after church and he said, hey, if money is the root of all evil, then why does church talk about money so much? And I, I know what he's saying because there certainly are people who have abused that in the church, like egregiously. And the thing is this, Paul is actually speaking against them, those people that would use the church for their own selfish purposes. 
He's speaking against this. But my friend made a mistake because he misquoted it. it. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to need resources. It's not wrong to be good at making money. In fact, Paul would say, hey, those who are good at making money have, have a, a great thing that they can step into that we'll talk about in a, in a little bit here. But we need to be careful because it's a trap and it can quickly distort and mess up our priorities. We've talked about this before, but St. Augustine talked about having disordered loves. Disordered loves, this idea that I can have good things in my life, but when they become ultimate things, they become bad things. So the hobby that I love to do that fills me up, that's a wonderful thing. But when it becomes more important than my spouse or my kids, it becomes a bad thing. Gardening, when it's something that I love to do, it can be a good thing, but when it's more important than Caring for your family, it's a bad thing. So Paul would say this. He would say, those things that you're doing, don't disorder them. The money thing, don't disorder that. It's not a bad thing, it's just a disordered thing. And what that does is it helps us to rephrase and reframe our understanding of what sin is really about. Because we tend to think of sin as this, don't do this bad thing. But what that tells us and what Paul would say is that sin can also be a good thing that even sometimes we should be doing, but when it becomes the most important thing for us, it becomes a sinful thing. It becomes a bad thing for us. The biblical concept for that is this concept of idolatry. So it's a great thing to have a home that you're proud of, but when that home becomes more important than peace with your spouse, when it becomes more important than fellowshipping with God's family, then it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol for you. Now, how do you know what, you, what an idol is? J.D. Greer, in his book, The Gospel, he says, do this. If you don't know where your idols are, follow the bitternesses in your heart. What are those things that have caused you to be bitter? And it's usually attached to an idol. And the reality is when we speak relationally, and we go back and we, we play tape and we think about what has happened in the past. And I can look back. What are those relational issues that have made me bitter? Many times it can be tied to stuff and resources and finances and, and money. There's something there about that that has a tug on my heart. And I need to be careful, Paul would say. Be careful. There's a trap. There's something going on there that you need to be aware of. The trap is this. The trap is that we can begin to miscalculate what our real foundation is. We start to think that our resources are the thing that brings us comfort and brings us security. So anytime our spouse would spend those resources, hey, I had that budgeted for something else. I feel insecure right now. I don't feel as stable-footed as I should feel because you spent something that you shouldn't have spent it on, and now there's this collision that's occurring. When our pattern of purchasing becomes this thing that becomes a, a, an issue where you start ac accumulating debt. Now, now you're starting to have a faulty foundation. And the thing is this, as we think about that in our humanity, and, 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 and we go, yeah, I get that, Scott, that's great, but here's, here's what I really believe. I bet if I just had enough money, 
I could probably overcome a lot of the issues I have in my life. If I, if I could just win the lottery, I could tell my boss and give them a piece of my mind. If I just won the lottery, I could go out to business on my own. I wouldn't have to work again the day in my life. If I could just win the lottery. I remember my grandma would always say that. Hey, son, you know, hey, grandson, when I win the lottery, I'll buy that for you. When I win the lottery. Well, I read an article about that this week. It's really fascinating. It says about what happens to people who all of a sudden come upon great wealth, like winning the lottery. This is what the article says. Congratulations, you just won millions of dollars in the lottery. That's great. Now you are really in trouble. You see, it's something of an open secret that winners of obnoxiously large jackpots tend to end up badly with alarming regularity. Don't believe me? Consider this. Large jackpot winners face double-digit multiples of probability versus the general population to be victims of homicide, drug overdose, bankruptcy, and kidnapping. And triple-digit multiples of probability versus the general population to be convicted of drunk driving, the victim of a homicide at the hands of a family member, 120 times more likely, mind you, ain't love grand, right? And a defendant in a civil lawsuit and a defendant in a felony criminal proceeding. They go on to tell the story of a guy named John Whitaker, lives in a small town in West Virginia, age 55 in 2002. He won at that time, which was the biggest jackpot in U.S. history, $315 million. The thing was, he was already a wealthy businessman with dozens and dozens of employees. So he intended to live his life as though nothing had changed. It didn't work. He became the subject of a number of personal challenges escalating into tragedies complicated by legal troubles. He became the subject of a number of financial stalkers who would lurk at his regular breakfast hideout and accost him with suggestions on how to spend his money. Eventually, they began ringing his doorbell. Before long, he was paying off deputies to protect his family. Letters poured in. Children with cancers, diabetes, MS, you name it. He hired three people to sort through the mail and and a private detective to filter out the false claims. Despite tripling the number of employees at his business and donating $14 million to charity, it made no difference in the end. He was accused of being heartless, cold, and stingy. To top it off, this is is, is something. To top it off, he was accused of ruining a number of marriages. His, made mon- his money made other men look inferior, they said. Wherever he went in the small West Virginia town he called home, resentment grew quickly and festered. Whitaker paid four settlements related to this sort of claim. Yes, you heard that correctly, four settlements. The local and state police also took a special interest in him. In 18 months, he had been cited for over 250 violations, ranging from a broken taillight on every one of his five new cars to improper display of renewal stickers, 250 in 18 months. But the most tragic is this. His adult granddaughter's life was lost, suspected foul play in connection with his family's money. His wife filed for divorce and in the process froze a number of his assets and accounts of his operating companies. Today, Whitaker is badly in debt and bankruptcy looms in his future. We think that money, if we could just have it, that it will be a foundation for us. And Paul would say, be careful. It is a faulty 
foundation. Yes, we need resources to live. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we love money above everything else, be very, very careful because it's gonna cause fallout in your life. It's gonna make you become greedy. It's gonna ruin your relationships. To quote Biggie, more money, more problems. So what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, Paul would know better. He says this in verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, flee. Everyone say flee. Flee. You, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue. Say the word pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And then he goes on a little further down in verse 17. He says, command those who are rich. I say, that's good because I've got a pass right now. I'm not rich. And I would just say this. If you got to pick what you wore or what you ate or where you went on vacation, you're rich. End of story. Here we go. Let's move on. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. He calls them arrogant. Like, that's, that's some fighting words. Why are they arrogant? Well, they're arrogant because they start to think that it's because of them and what they've accomplished and what they could build and what they sec- could secure, that it's, it's their hard work that created the wealth. I sacrificed to get this thing. I worked my way up the ladder. Paul would look at that and say, you're arrogant, you're arrogant. Money is a, is a faulty foundation because it's here one moment and it's gone. You, you came into this world with nothing and you're leaving with nothing. You can't take it with you. It's gone so quickly. According to Sports Illustrated, an amazing 78% of NFL players find themselves bankrupt within two years of retirement. And 60% of NBA players are broke within five years of walking off the court. It's gone like that. It's as if this, it's as if Paul would say, hey, you can be rich, that's fine, but you need to know that there are some powerful side effects to it. That wealth, if it were an over-the-counter medicine, there would be bold warnings printed on the packaging. Warning, may cause arrogance. While taking this medicine, extra precaution should be taken not to offend people. If taken for prolonged periods, may impair perception, causing hope to migrate. If you saw a commercial for wealth on TV, it would show happy people holding hands in the park. Meanwhile, the announcer would list all the ways that it can ruin your kidneys, rot your stomach, cause sudden heart failure, and destroy your life. So what do we do to offset this kind of horrible side effects of wealth and riches? He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But, this is it, ready? To put their hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. He says, command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why is that the antidote? Because greed it's ultimately a faith issue. It's ultimately an issue of belief. 
when I'm discontented, when I'm greedy, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the house that I have, the spouse that I live with, the job that I have, it's not enough for me. God, you messed up. I'm not happy with what you've given me, and I cannot trust in what you've so sovereignly blessed me with. So I've got to pursue a better foundation than that. What gives me strength, a greedy person would say, it's my nest egg. What calms my nerves, well, that's easy. It's HSN. It's it's Amazon package coming in on the porch. What makes me feel worthwhile, it's when I have I have a newer car than the person next to me. When, I've, when I have a higher rank than the person next to me, than my brother. It's when I've accomplished more or when I have more square footage or more acreage. We must allow Jesus to be the Lord of our money and our possessions or our money and our possessions will become Lord over us. And so this is, this is how I wrote it down and, and kind of what I would want you to think about, internalize, and maybe recite to yourself this week, it's this. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. Say that back with me. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. One more time. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. So I'm going to choose contentment. I'm going to be satisfied with what I already have. I'm not going to trust in riches. I'm going to trust in God who richly provides for me. Stuff is just stuff. Someday I'm going to have to get rid of it. It's a poor foundation. I'm blessed by it now, but I'm not going to put my trust in that. So how on earth do you actually do that? And this is what he says next. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. To be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, the things that you have, you, there's only one way that you can take it with you. By being generous. By being willing to share. By giving it away. You hang on to it, it's going to rot and deteriorate. When you give it away, Jesus says, you're laying up a treasure in heaven in the coming age. He says, we're able to combat greed by being generous, by being open-handed, by choosing to put down the spoon that only feeds ourselves and instead picking up a ladle that's used to serve other people. Last year, God was speaking to me about, about this. I was working hard to try to create a savings for my family, and so I was focused on that and was starting to get some momentum on all of that. Meanwhile, my cars were dying. Um, and Jen's driving around, my wife is driving around a car that really wasn't very reliable, really wasn't safe either. And, um, and so I started the process of looking for a car, and I'm grouchy with money like that, at least money that I care about like that. So, so I'm looking at cars, and I'm like, they're way too expensive, and the mileage is way too high. And I was meeting with a friend, and I was just grouching about that. And he said, you know, Scott, I think maybe you need to think about this a, a different kind of way. He said, what does it mean for you to trust in God in this area? To be more open-handed 
this is your wife and kids you're talking about. And so I was like, you know what, you're right. For me, here's what that meant. And this sounds very, this sounds very counterintuitive. I would, I would rather drive the junky old car, right? That for me is being tight-fisted with the things that we have. And God said, you need to take care. You, you have, your priorities are disordered. You need to care for your family. So for me, it meant that I would go to the dealership and I would get a car loan and I would get a car for my wife to drive around and, and be safe in. Seems twisted, doesn't it? Like a new car for me is open-handed living. But here's, here's what that did to me, that every month when I have to pay that payment, rather than hanging on and hoarding, I'm saying, God, I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. I'm contented with that. You have blessed me. Nothing will grow your faith in God like voluntarily giving up what you treasure. Generosity is the antidote for greedy hands. In fact, I think that's why God had so much to say about money in the, in the Bible. Not because he needs our money. He doesn't need a cent of our money. You realize he owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides? He does not need our resources. That's, that's a joke, right? He doesn't need that. But the reason he wants us to be open-handed is not for him, but it's for us. It's because he knows that this stuff can so quickly get a grip on our hearts. So he says, you need to be generous. The way to fight off greed, the best way we can do that is by voluntarily giving it away. And when we give it away, what we're saying is, I might have money, but money doesn't have me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna step into generosity. So I wanna challenge every student and man and woman here today to step into generosity like that. Many of you are living that way already, but I want to encourage you that you would give a, a percentage, some percentage away generously to someone else or some organization else. What is that percentage? Here's the, here's the thing. You get to pick what that is, but it needs to be something that matters to your heart. In other words, I know for where my family's at, it's not a big deal for me to give five bucks to somebody. It doesn't really matter to my heart. There is an amount that matters to my heart. And that's the percentage to pick. There is a thing that matters to my, that's what, how much it should be. You get to pick what it is. Each month you resolve to give that away. Not to earn God's favor, but to, to free your heart from greed. Give to something that you believe in. And for many of us, that might be God's kingdom advances in the local church. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, I get it, preacher. Now you're asking me for money. Look, look, no, I'm not. If, you're, if you think that's, that's just being self-serving, then I would say this. Find any organization. Give to another church. Give to another organization out there. And give to them. Give to something that you believe in. Look at that money and say, you know what? Monthly, I'm going to set this aside, and this gets to be fun money, but that fun money is there just to fill the needs of other people. I think God would look at that, and he would be blessed by that, saying, you are combating greed in your heart. Give to something that you believe in. For, for many of those who are following after Jesus, we believe in the local church, and, we, and I choose to give that way, but you get to pick how much and where it goes. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Just for a moment, let's have everyone close your eyes. We're not praying yet, but I just want you to think, all right? We're going to set up this space to think. And I want to ask you a few questions. We're closing our eyes just to eliminate distractions. 
What is the area in your life that you may say, I never have enough? I never have enough. I never have enough attention from my spouse. I never have enough alone time. I never have enough money. I never have enough food. What is that thing for you that you would say, I, I, I just feel like a little bit more and I'd be there? Or what is the area in your life that tends to be the center of arguments? What is the thing that creates clashes in your home, the, the kids who leave the lights on and you're thinking about that electrical bill? What is that thing that seems to be the focus of all of the clashes in your relationships? Or to go a level deeper, what is that area in your life that you might have the most amount of bitterness in? You are most bitter about this thing. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to, in this space, in this time, just pray out to God and say, God, I, I want to walk not trusting in those things which honestly, even as I think about it, are horrible found- it's a horrible foundation. God, I know my house is going to deteriorate. I know my health is not always going to be there. I know the money runs out. God, help me to trust not in the riches but trust in you who richly provides Would you say that to him in this space? Would you just speak to him about what the Spirit may have revealed to you? God, I'm so grateful just as we wrap up here as the worship team comes back up and we just respond in the song. I'm just thinking about this reality that I'm so grateful that Jesus wasn't greedy with his resources and with his time. That he wasn't saying, man, I just... just, uh, you know, I need some more, I need some more me time. I need more food. I need more resources. I'm sorry, that kind of life is not the life that I want. Because he was willing to be open-handed and trust in you, we have been able to receive the riches of the kingdom of heaven. What a joyful and amazing, mind-blowing thing. God, would you uh, work in all of us this week to see and comprehend and understand those spaces that we often run to that uh, numbs the pain, that satiates our attention. God, that, that maybe they're disordered in our lives and causes a whole lot of conflict. God, we love you. Thank you that you said that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, that we can trust in you. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.